0: one small step for brands, one giant leap for brand kind. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Food Chain by Perfy. We've got F.C., the founder of Zora Chocolate with us today. F.C., welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Let's start with a, an intro about you. I'd love to know more about you and have our listeners learn more about you
1: yeah so I was born and raised in Morocco and actually went to the u s for college. Uh, I went to Boston. My founder story really started in college um, where I decided to immerse myself in the chocolate industry after a seminar and lecture I attended about the chocolate industry and it was the founder of a of a chocolate company called Taza. and I had grown up with chocolate being such an important part of I guess I would say like even Moroccan culture, it's to me, it was kind of like a celebration of life. That's what chocolate represented. It was present at birthdays, births, the weddings, you know, every, anytime we'd be invited at someone's house, you know, the go to gift was chocolate. So chocolate was really something that I grew up with as being so special and that represented so much goodness. So that during that lecture, when I kind of learned that there was a bitter side or a dark side to the chocolate industry, that kind of made me want to really learn a lot more about it. So yeah, when I graduated, I worked for a nonprofit called the Fine Cacao and Chocolate Institute. And then I also worked for an organic cocoa farm in the Dominican Republic, uh, whose focus was on bird conservation and biodiversity. And during that time, I was very lucky to be able to network and meet so many different business owners, entrepreneurs who had started their own bean-to-bar companies and that were Making delicious, quality chocolate, impactful chocolate, and engaged in direct sourcing and had direct relations with their cocoa farming communities. There was just one problem: West Africa was just non-existent in the space. It was rarely used in products. Um, It was rarely spoken about, and there was a huge disconnect for me because the majority of cocoa globally comes from West Africa, and that's what I had learned, you know, before I started working and doing my own research. And so the fact that I was confronted with this like reality when I entered the industry, it didn't sit well with me. And so my motivation as an entrepreneur was that there should be more space in fine specialty chocolate, the West African region. And I feel like today we live in a time where consumers are more inclined to purchase products that have a story and that story should be one of impact. And so West Africa is the place where most of the challenges lie in cocoa. And I felt compelled to take this shift, shift the narrative that I was seeing in the industry as an African and shed a new light on this beautiful continent and this region and show that, you know, we can get really beautiful tasting chocolate and really high quality beans from the region.
0: Amazing. And tell me more about how it like Zora came to be. And real quick before you do, I've got a funny bonus message. My mom's name is actually Zora and I have the male version of her name as my middle name, Zoran. So I think it's pretty cool that you're my first guest and there's such that that cool connection. Uh, But yeah, tell me more about how Zora came to be in the past couple of years. What made you take that first step and what are some stories along that after that first step to when you founded it and when it was officially launched uh, that you want to share?
1: So this is, I mean, and actually a really long story because I started my idea of Zora in like early 2019 and it was completely different than what it is today. And I know we hear a lot of founders say that sometimes. In my case, I wanted to create a very small processing facility in Ghana in a cocoa farming community so that not only do cocoa farmers you know, harvest the beans and go through fermentation and drying, but they also go through the process of making chocolate. A lot of farmers... That you've talked to on the farms don't even know what chocolate tastes like. They don't really know what happens to the beans after they sell them, and so for me it was kind of a way to have this value added in country that was really important and really necessary and could make a really huge impact. There were a lot of issues with my strategy, and it was much much harder than I ever you know had imagined. And so I went to Ghana. I spent ten days there, and everyone there was just like, "You're absolutely crazy!" Like this is your first time in Ghana, you know, you you don't have a local partner legally. There was just so many different hurdles that I had to get through. And so I kind of went back to the drawing board and thought, okay, what is actually my end goal? Like after the experience that I've had and why does Zora even exist? Um, And it was really to promote West African cocoa and chocolate. And so my ultimate goal is a made in Africa product. It's not today. But we're starting off now with you know, sourcing our beans from the region, promoting the region, but making our chocolate in the U.S.
0: Who's the villain in Zora's story?
1: I don't necessarily think that we can point fingers at one entity or one company. It's a supply chain issue, and it's the way that the supply chain has been designed. Today, the average daily wage for a male cocoa farmer is 78 cents and the average daily wage for a female cocoa farmer is 28 cents. That's an issue, right? And so especially when you see the huge disparity between the fact that the chocolate industry is worth $100 billion, and cocoa farmers are only receiving less than 5% of the profit, you know, there's a complete imbalance within the supply chain. So I think every player should be held accountable and is responsible for what's going on. And And I do think that, you know, everyone that finds themselves and every company and entity that finds themselves along the supply chain needs to step up. And, you know, if they haven't and is responsible for what's going on.
0: Why do you think that is that the cocoa farmers are making less than 5% of all profits?
1: I don't really know if, you know, this actually exists. I'm sure this exists with other crops, but with cocoa, In Africa in particular, I can't just go to a a cocoa farm and just purchase cocoa. It's a whole process. Uh, The cocoa farmer actually doesn't sell their cocoa beans to the buyer. It passes through an entity called CocoBod, which is a governmental entity. There's one in Ghana and one in Ivory Coast. And through the different points in the chain and through all of the middlemen the cocoa farmer ends up getting the shortest end of the stick you know they're the last person to get the profit and they just have no decision no like they have no power in how much what they're being given there's a set farm gate price and they're pretty much powerless
0: they're pretty important in the process though right
1: yeah i'd say they're probably the most important in the process and so that's kind of why it's so shocking and to me i see this as you know of course you know there needs to be a lot of change and it's great to see so many companies new companies that are actually you know taking responsibility and deciding to create that change and eliminating a lot of the middlemen in the process and trying to find a lot more traceability transparency along the supply chain i also think that We don't educate consumers enough. You know, when you look at the coffee industry, I'm not even a coffee drinker. And I like five years ago, I knew that there were issues along the coffee supply chain. I think that it's something that consumers were very much made part of. But when it comes to the chocolate industry, I think when you go talk to an average consumer, I don't think they even know that, you know, cocoa grows in the African continent. So I do also hope to see a little bit more education on the consumers side because I do think that ultimately that could create you know, a really big change and pressure for companies to take more responsibility and accountability.
0: Are there any brands that are larger that are doing a good job at this? Or is it mostly the challenger brands that are up and coming that are being more diligent and responsible in how they're producing chocolate?
1: Yeah, I'd say the latter, you know, especially because these companies are start, you know, pretty small. It's small businesses. So they have a lot more control and they start off like Zora in our business model as, you know, somewhat like vertically integrated. Like we demand that type of traceability and transparency and connection to the source. And that's what's important for a high quality product, but also for that impact part which we shouldn't even have to have be having this conversation of impact it should you know just be natural that you know we're able to have direct communication with a cocoa farmer and just pay them directly for our crops for their crops and their cocoa beans but i would say that you know the emerging companies and small companies that are making a difference but at such a small scale because as i said it's it's small companies compared to the multinational ones
0: why do you think that the big brands and big food aren't uh, the biggest leaders in this
1: that's a tough question. It's such big companies that it's difficult for them to completely redesign the way that they've been handling their logistics, their operations and the fact that they have thousands and thousands of smallholder farms in their network. They can and if you want we can go into this now and you know there are programs that have been put in place from like Mondelēz and Mars and Hershey's of like sustainability programs and impact programs. But as we've just seen recently, there's been a documentary that just came out that has shown that there has been some labor issues found within these programs. So are these programs put in place simply, you know, for marketing reasons? Or is it just very difficult for them to do their due diligence? Are they not doing enough? Those are kind of all the questions that we're asking right now.
0: I guess the answer I'm trying to get at is, don't you think that if the cocoa farmers were paid a fair wage, that the 49 cent candies that we see in corner stores and stores across the country and across the globe would be more expensive. My opinion is I think that it's all for profit. And I think that all of the sustainability measures are a facade to hide all of their malpractice.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're definitely benefiting from the the farm gate prices that are in place today. And I mean, when you look at just the bean to bar industry, we're, we're struggling because it's really difficult for us to justify an $11 bar when, you know, you go to any like bodega in New York City and you'll see like a Lint bar, which is, you know, supposed to be a high quality bar in the minds and eyes of a consumer and costs like four dollars. So when you look at craft chocolate where we are paying so much more for cocoa and where we are, you know, doing a lot more due diligence and, you know, paying a lot more attention to where we're sourcing our cocoa from, you know, that's a huge difference. So yeah, of course, profit is probably number one.
0: Can you explain what bean-to-bar means?
1: Yes. So bean-to-bar, actually, there's not really an official term to bean-to-bar. It's really just the journey from the cocoa bean to the chocolate bar. It implies that the process has been vertically integrated from the cocoa bean all the way to the actual finished product. If chocolate is not bean-to-bar, usually chocolatiers buy pre-made chocolate, melt the chocolate, put in you know their own ingredients, put it in their own molds, and have their final product. So when it's not being bar, that just means that generally and usually there's no traceability on where the cocoa beans are coming from or how the chocolate is actually made.
0: What's what's Zora's superpower? If all of these problems exist in the cocoa trade, what's your brand's superpower?
1: It's West Africa. Uh, when the average consumer actually thinks about the best chocolate in the world, even if they don't know it, the flavor they're thinking about is West Africa. We all grew up the majority of us eating chocolate that comes from the West African region. It's a chocolate that's nostalgic to us. It's a chocolate that we relate to. And um, it also, as I said, happens to be the region where most of the challenges lie. So there's many companies in the bean to bar world that are really afraid of associating themselves and their brand to West Africa. And they really stay away from that because it's linked to large multinational companies. And so, By default, they kind of see it as poor quality beans and have a really, really negative perception of cocoa in West Africa. But I really see that as uh, Zora's superpower because we're proving that, you know, West Africa is chocolate and cocoa is absolutely delicious and amazing.
0: What are some of the ways that Zora is kind of attacking these problems head on?
1: So... I designed Zora and like the business model and the way that I was thinking about it was really from a socioeconomic standpoint. And so it was really first about where we're sourcing our cocoa from, you know, how are we going to be paying the farmers? How are we going to be getting the actual cocoa beans out of Ghana? And just all of these different factors. But then also within those farms, what's going on? You know, what are the resources that they need? How can we support beyond the sourcing of cocoa beans. And my goal is to work with a lot of different cooperatives in both Ghana and Ivory Coast. Today, we're sourcing from a cooperative called Abokfa in the eastern region of Ghana. And bokfa is known for some of the highest quality beans in the region. And they are certified organic. They're certified fair trade. They've invested a lot of energy in teaching farmers how to ferment and dry their beans and post-harvesting techniques. And they're also democratically run. So that means that every single member in the cooperative, and there's over a thousand members today, actually gets to decide where the premiums profits from organic and fair trade certifications where they're placed. And so that was really number one. And then number two, as I said, was about let's kind of look at all of the other issues that are going on. We know that, you know, there is a lack of resources and basic necessities, but, you know, which are the ones that we can start tackling first and which are, you know, the most important And for us, we started a women's economic empowerment program because gender norms are constraining towards women, even on cocoa farms. And studies have shown that um, women do have a higher illiteracy rate and a lower level of formal education than men, and especially in sub-Saharan Africa. And so that's where we put in our one bar, one day program, where with every single bar purchased, we're contributing to one day of school. So we decided to tackle the issue of education.
0: I love the mission behind that. Murphy, you know, my, you know, if there's one dream that I can have, it's to have high fructose cane sugar banned in the United States and eventually the globe. It's funny because I looked on Change.org, and there was several times that people started that petition, and it got very few views. Nobody really cared. But it's such a problem in in my industry, which is soda you know that which leads to diabetes obesity and all of these terrible metabolic diseases it's cool to see that you're tackling literacy and and, and bringing that balance and so just wanted to show that
1: yeah um, but do you, do you find that it's hard sorry I know this is about
0: where
1: okay. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be yeah. interviewing you but how challenging is it for you to create that level of education because at the end of the day you know if that's your goal you can't do it alone right and the consumer ultimately does have a lot of power in supporting make the shifts and make those changes right so how challenging is it for you to actually educate the consumer on how bad of a ingredient this is yes
0: yeah, so for me i i'm a one person team in a startup soda company but i've i view competitors as alliances and i know that that investors never want to hear that you know there's a functional soda category that all of the dope sparkling waters that have launched all of them are leading towards greater awareness around certain ingredients that people shouldn't drink. And for me, the consumer journey goes from, you know, the traditional soda to the traditional diet soda to sparkling water. In all three of those instances, the person that was drinking the the traditional soda, like, well, I shouldn't be drinking this cane sugar. I shouldn't be drinking this high-fructose corn syrup. I shouldn't be drinking these artificial flavors or ingredients, whatever that may be. And then they go to diet soda and the zero calorie doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for them because there's artificial sweeteners now that are involved. And then eventually they learn that they're educated and they switch and they go over to sparkling water that might have terrible linings inside of the can that people learned about, or they might realize like, well, these are, these are natural flavors that I want to stay away from uh, because there's no actual nutrition in them. So for me, I, I view the competitors in the functional soda space as an alliance. Yeah. We might be sitting next to each other on shelf, but if all of our missions is to reduce high fructose corn syrup intake and artificial ingredient intake, then we're all on the same team. So for me, that's the first step is identifying them as partners. They may not see it that way, but that's how I view it. And for me, there's, there's a tremendous amount of respect for them that I have. So I do view it as having a team to answer questions shortly. And I think that as a team approach, the big soda companies will be like, well, our market share is going down. We need to buy them at that point that i think that the ethical question is asked to the challenger brand do we want to sell to the people that created the problem and for me it's no
1: A 100% and i that makes a lot of sense it's very similar in the chocolate industry as well especially the bean to bar world because it's so new and um it's so small and i do think that there is some sort of an alliance there i mean especially when i was working for fcci i would go to a lot of different industry events and a lot of companies are, you know, very friendly. And um, at least for me also, like I have some of my mentors are, you know, competitors, (laughs) owners of, of competitor companies. But a lot of us do see it in the same way as you just described as let's unite and stick together. Because at the end of the day, we're all kind of working towards the same goal. And there's room for all of us. It's a huge market, you know, like it's pretty big. Let's join forces. And, you know, we're such a minute part of the market share right now. So, you know, we have nothing to lose. Like, let's do this together. So I, I definitely see that in Bean bar, which is super awesome.
0: I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier regarding the regions and geography that, you know, the cocoa beans come from. And for me, you always hear people talking about, like you mentioned Lint chocolate too. So there's always the Swiss chocolates and the Belgian chocolates And you might've touched on it. Why is it that we never say that this is a delicious West African chocolate? That's specialty chocolate. Why are you one of the first that I've seen?
1: I love that you're asking this because last night I couldn't sleep and I was thinking about what success meant to me. I don't know why, but I was just thinking about like, there is obviously, you know, the financial and the monetary and the revenue and the profits and the numbers and all of that. But like, you know, other than that, like what does success look like for me? And it's, When, you know, we get to a point where we ask an average consumer, where does chocolate come from? And they'll be like, West Africa. And... I mean, West Africa represents over 70% of cocoa worldwide. That's huge. Ivory Coast is, is within Af- West Africa. There's Ivory Coast, which is 40%. Ghana, which is where we source from in Zora, which represents about 30%. And then you have Latin America representing about 16 and Asia that represents about 12%. So cocoa doesn't actually grow in Belgium or Switzerland, France, Europe. Like there's no cocoa there. It's made there though. A lot of it, actually, in Ghana, at least 80% of cocoa is exported out of the country, which is wild. And chocolate processing in, in Africa is very slim. Only 20% of, of cocoa beans are actually processed in the continent. Uh, and then you have 38% of chocolate that's processed and made in Europe, 21 that's chocolate and processed in the U.S. So we attribute and we link chocolate to the US or Europe, because that's where it's made. But I think there's not a lot of education on the raw, the primary raw material of chocolate, which is cocoa. And what's actually interesting is that now that, you know, I think consumer behavior is definitely shifting in all industries, even in um, the soda industry. And I do see that a lot of these companies like Ritter Spore and Milka and Lindt and Hershey's, like, I do see that some of the packaging is changing and I do see like cocoa beans, images of cocoa beans, something that I had never you know, seen before. And so there is kind of now a shift on this idea of like, you know, craft and we, we like just the, the feeling that it's a product that is really mindfully made, I guess, and um, made in, you know, great conditions. But yeah, it's the goal with us at Zora is really to be able to promote elevate celebrate recognize that cocoa comes from west africa
0: yeah i didn't i didn't even know those statistics that you developed you off there and it's pretty shocking i, I would have always thought that belgian chocolate the cocoa came from belgium i never would have i mean i just guess it's on me but i didn't know that it's crazy can,
1: can i throw um, another crazy statistic at you please, please i'll, I'll please ask you do. a question. What percentage you, of of um, chocolate consumption do you think uh, is found in the entire African continent?
0: I would say very low. I feel like Americans probably eat the most chocolate on the planet. <laughs> Am I close?
1: It's 4%. It's crazy. It's 4%. 4%. That's insane. 70% of cocoa grows in this and 4% of it is consumed. Everything goes out. Everything is exported out of these countries. And so I do also think that pre-COVID and maybe even COVID has emphasized the importance of utilizing resources, and especially the African continent. There's so many resources that we have available, um, even in Morocco, and we don't utilize them. Like, they're just completely, like, you know, exported out of our countries. And so I think that just at least in cocoa, uh, the Ghanaian government, and even in Ivory Coast, there is a lot more talk around processing cocoa into chocolate. It's just in Europe and the companies that do process them have so much experience and so much history and so much know-how and, and all of that that it's very difficult to compete with them.
0: I want to go to um, one question. I, like, I've been looking forward to this one. What does fair trade mean as and is it even the end-all be-all? or as like a a claim on on chocolate?
1: Fair trade is a trade justice program. It's great, but it's not enough to get farmers out of a cycle of perpetual poverty. If you are fair trade certified as a cocoa farmer, you receive a premium for that certification. And that's usually 16% above the commodity price, but the costs increase as well. And so in order to be fair trade certified, You have to pay an application fee. You have to pay an initial certification fee. You have to pay an annual certification fee. You have to pay uh, an audit fee and like a couple other more fees. So it's actually very expensive. And so it is not the be all end all solution to, you know. Cocoa farmer poverty and the issues that we're seeing with living income in cocoa farms. It has shown that consumers are more willing to pay for products that are fair trade certified, and that may be helping like retailers and chocolate companies and and certification companies as well. But when you look at you know how it's affecting uh, cocoa farmers, I mean it's been shown that it's not enough.
0: What do you think about the brands that say that they are slave-free chocolate?
1: Personally, I'm, I'm not really a fan. I don't agree. First of all, it's a narrative that's almost always tied to Africa. And reputationally, West African cocoa has been stigmatized because of the history of labor abuse in that region. And it's been popularized by civil society organizations, different NGOs, the media. If you type in on Google, cocoa, West Africa, You're just going to find a bunch of very negative things. And so to me, brands that use the issues of slavery and child labor and embed that into their branding and their marketing are like demonizing and relying on this narrative to sell their product. I've had this conversation many times with one of my mentors and advisors. Her name is Christy Leslie. She is an author, an academic, a researcher, and has been doing this for 16 years And she's had so many conversations with cocoa farmers about this narrative. And they are extremely frustrated that this is the dominant narrative. There are so many issues going on in the industry. And to have this be the predominant narrative that, you know, we're talking about um, when it comes to cocoa in West Africa can be very harmful. It's a horrifying reality. And it's not that it doesn't exist. It exists there are other issues. And I think we also need to be more mindful when painting this picture of Africa, when branding and marketing, because it can be unfair towards cocoa farming communities that don't employ these practices. And, you know, I, I learned so much from Christy, because she has lived in Ghana for about six years now. And, I mean, she has been to many different parts of Ghana and, and has spoken to many different cocoa farmers and has spent a lot of time with on farms and has developed, you know, very um, close relationships to farmers. And in her experience, she hasn't come across this. It exists, though, like it's not that it doesn't. But she personally hasn't come across this. And so, the way that she talks about her experience is that this is not indicative of every single farm in this region. And so. To be able to paint this picture, I just don't agree with it. And um, I was on a webinar recently with her where she was speaking about this and she asked a a question that really marked me. And it was posed to uh, chocolate companies and it was How do you represent farmers that you buy from in their humanity if you're constantly pushing the narrative about slavery tied to the African continent? And she had also said, You know, these people are mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, like they're human beings. And so, when you kind of just put them in this box of employing uh, modern day slavery practices and and child labor, it can be harmful to this region. It exists, and we need to take steps to figure out you know how we can work with farms that don't employ these practices and educate more and you know take the necessary steps. But having it be a part of, you know, your marketing and your even slogan, um, at least to me, isn't that helpful. Because the goal is for us to not have this anymore. And it shouldn't be a part of selling a product. And if you've noticed, is kind of the antithesis of that, we're starting from a place of positivity, like being constructive and a place of love. Like we want chocolate consumers to trust us. And in order to do that, we have to trust West Africa. And I think that that is the first place, we can start and also creating really strong ties to Cocoa Farmers as well and, and build these relationships that we want to be able to build so that we can move towards a, a more positive and impactful future.
0: Is that what you mean when you when you say um, you want to celebrate West African chocolate? Everyone's talking about different things that are happening. I, I feel like you, you mentioned on our pre-call that celebrating West African, West African chocolate should be
1: the way to go. We celebrate chocolate all the time, and we have a manifesto at Zora, and um, one of the phrases in our manifesto is hand to heart, and the meaning of that is, you know, the link between West Africa and and, um, the consumer wherever they are, but it's from the hand of the cocoa farmers, the hearts of the consumers, and I think that chocolate represents so much love and bliss and goodness to consumers, and it's such a celebratory food as well that we want to, you know, celebrate, you know, the entire chocolate making process. And these farmers, they're hard workers, they're proud of their cocoa, they're proud of what they're selling. And it's passed on from generation to generation. So it's important, I think, for me to have created this story behind Zora of celebration, to invite more openness and transparency and help put Africa on the map, moving away from the negative perspectives, putting more emphasis on like a new image of forward thinking and acting growth.
0: Are there any measures that brands are taking? Um, You don't have to name drop them if you don't want, but I feel like a QR code on a, a chocolate bar that has complete transparency of where these beans came from and what factories they went to, which farm it started out on. Is any brand doing that?
1: I'd love to name my favorite brands because they're just awesome. There's so many companies that are doing amazing things. And I'll start off by um, one of them, which is Mocha Origins. They actually have a cocoa farm in Cameroon. They don't only source from Cameroon because they don't have enough cocoa in Cameroon to do that. So they source from a bunch of different places, but they actually have a QR code. And, you know, if anyone's interested in learning more about Bintavar, I definitely look into them. But a lot of companies have transparency reports. And within these transparency reports, you know, they'll tell you how much cocoa they bought. Where they bought their cocoa from, the number of male and female cocoa farmers on the farm, even environmental like the, their carbon footprint. So it's become a trend uh, within these companies and with Zora as well. And we're planning on putting out a transparency report, but it at least allows us to you know emphasize this element that there is so much transparency within our supply chain, and we, you know, we can provide that information to you because there's nothing to hide, right? Like it's, it's actually, you know, plays in our favor to be able to say, Hey, look, and I think eventually, you know, once this bean-to-bar chocolate market grows, that could also add a little bit more pressure on, you know, these larger companies that maybe don't have transparency reports or don't, are not really as open as bean-to-bar companies.
0: So my last question is probably the, the biggest one for me, at least, and I don't know why, but how are some of these big companies getting away with so much like, I'll be the one that says it, but I know Nestle, that case was closed with no sort of sanctions and it was done. Everyone forgot. And just recently, uh, an article came out in the UK about Mongolese Cadbury, And why are these things kind of just getting swept under the rug? Why is Big Chocolate just getting away with everything?
1: It's an excellent question. And just as you said, I'd like to dive deeper into what they're getting away with. Uh, last summer, there was a case that actually went to the Supreme Court in the U.S. against Nestle and Cargo of um, six Malian young children who were forced to pick poco- cocoa beans for over 14 hours. The case was closed. They were not held legally responsible. The reason as to why they weren't held legally responsible is because they don't own or operate those farms they provide farmers with technical and financial resources, such as like training, fertilization, like educational resources, financial resources, and they purchase their cocoa. So it kind of seemed like, well, they're just buying the cocoa beans. It's not really their responsibility. So, you know, is it the fact that they just have a lot of power and leverage and they can, I don't know, um, but they are getting away with it. And although they're not, Fully responsible for it all, they definitely should be held accountable. There's also a documentary that actually came out a couple of days ago. Um, it's the one that you talked about that found instances of child labor, young children, you know, as young as ten, involved in like hazardous farming activities, including like the use of machetes and even cases of being injured. I haven't watched the documentary, but I just read about it and. It basically like depicts that since you know farmers are struggling to make a proper living income from cocoa, they can't hire proper adult laborers. So that's they resort to children, and the the companies that were mentioned in the documentary were was mostly Mandela's International, and so again they have a cocoa life program which promotes sustainability. And they have like 81,000 farmers in that program. And I mean, that's, you know, the farms that they found, these uh, labor practices that were employed are part of this Cocoa Life program that Mondelez put in place. Within the program, they have like a three-tiered mission, which is empower cocoa communities, conserve and restore forests and create sustainable cocoa farming businesses. And so I don't know if if they're actually also going to be held accountable for this, but that also kind of goes to show that the programs that they're putting in place sometimes aren't, you know, enough. And that makes you question really why they're even there. And are they actually having the impact that they're claiming that they have?
0: It's a very interesting thing. There's a lot of brands putting marketing and initiatives out there that are basically wrapping up all of the BS that's behind the scenes, you know? And one thing I just wanted to point out is that a lot of these big food companies have, incubators and a lot of these challenger brands are going through incubators and getting their feet off the ground for their startup. But what I, what I don't understand, and for me, it's it's all about integrity and ethics. I wouldn't want to be part of an incubator of brand, big food brand or big soda brand that is creating, or at least complicit in so many issues across the globe. For me, I'd rather try to go it on my own or reach out to a certain network of people and stand for something than try to say, hey, we're making a healthier X, Y, or Z. But we're working with, you know, the Wizard of Oz to get it done. It just doesn't make sense to me.
1: I totally agree with you. I mean, I think there's like a part of like I mean of course, you know, there are some amazing companies that are part of these programs, but are we saying that we're okay with it? You know, if, if we're a part of these programs and, exactly. and so exactly. um, I also feel a bit uncomfortable with it. And I, you know, you're, you're a marketer and you know, you're um, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this because I know I talked about my idea my opinion of slave free chocolate, but I'd love to know, you know, as a marketer, it sells more, you know, like it sells more. Like you look at Tony's Only, who's like, they're excellent marketers. I've had their chocolate and it's absolutely delicious. It's really good. And, you know, there's a lot that they do that I I am super inspired by, but their slogan is slave free chocolate. And um, how do we feel about that? Like, when should we start asking the question of like, yes, we're a company, you have to make money. Like you have to be able to, you know, market your product in the best way possible to target your market versus this question of morality.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a balance you've got to, you've got to walk. For me, there's so many people complicit in, for this conversation, the cocoa trade. There's the people that work at the big food companies like Nestle and Mondelez, And then what cracks me up, it actually doesn't crack me up, but it. it mind blows me that some of these people from big food will then go to a challenger brand and bring all of that knowledge, but nobody ever questions. Well, you were part of that. And in a way you kind of knew that it was happening and you chose to turn a blind eye. How are you now going to help me grow mine when you were part of the problem? And that's why I'm, I'm for now, at least everyone says, yeah, you'll change your tune in a few years, but I wouldn't be stoked to hire you know a 20 year vet from Coke or Pepsi or Keurig Dr. Pepper to come on and be the CEO of Curfee, when this entire time they've been contributing to one of the biggest problems in America and definitely the globe, but America for sure, one in three people are pre-diabetic or have type 2 diabetes. Like very few of them even know. If you're contributing to a problem, why do you go to a challenger brand and bring all of that knowledge, but you were complicit in that problem? That's one of the things that I can't get my mind wrapped around. To answer your question regarding morality versus profits. For me, I think having a a point of view and standing for something, whether it's successful or a failure, I don't want to play the game of, well, I'll sell out just so I can stay in business. For me, morality, integrity, ethics is number one. If I go out of business, you got to chalk it up. You got to take the L and move on. But for me, I'd rather not play their game of let's just throw some crap in my product, let's decrease the value of it and, and try to be more mainstream when the actual problem is removing something from theirs. You know, creating perfy, I took literally everything bad out of soda, everything bad out of diet soda. And for the first three flavors, there's not even natural flavors that might be found in sparkling waters. So everything that was a problem I chose to take out and put with something that's probably the best ingredient for it. So I mean, that's the hill I'll die on is ethics, integrity, and, and morality. And it's not profits. I don't wake up in the morning checking my bank account, checking my Coinbase. Like, yes, money, money, money. I wake up. The first thing I think about is making an impact.
1: And so, and I think that that, you know, speaks to you as an entrepreneur. So many times I've been in like conversations with people like at the early stages of Zora when like I was, you know, looking for a little bit of guidance in like certain areas. And i had been told like, are you starting a charity or are you starting a business? I think that I've learned so much uh, about me as an individual. Like, I don't know if you can relate, but I've had so much growth as a person through this journey of starting Zora and I'm only at the beginning. But so far, I've learned so much about what I'm comfortable with, what I'm not comfortable with, what I'm seeing. You know, sometimes I see things and I'll that, you know, have been done before, just marketing tactics and I'll, I'll do them and then I'll take a step back and I'll say, wait, that's not right. And then I kind of like, you know, reroute. But... Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think, especially when you're starting a company that has such an important cause that you personally care about, that's all that matters.
0: Well, let's close this out and let's get some of your your info, your website, your Instagram. Where can people find you? Where can we learn more?
1: Absolutely. Uh, You can follow us at uh, Zora Chocolate on Instagram, on our website, www.zorachocolate.com. And yeah, we offer corporate gifting as well. So if ever you're interested, definitely um, hit me up. My email is fzhakam at zorachocolate.com. And Vasa, actually, I, I do want to create a discount code, but I haven't created it yet because I wanted to ask you about the name of it. Okay. I don't know if it should be like Perfy. So what are you comfortable with?
0: Yeah, I Food Chain, and I'll put it in the show notes too for you.
1: Okay, great. So the discount code is FoodChain15 uh, for 15% off on all of our bars. Gotcha.
0: Awesome, FC was awesome chatting with you. I appreciate your time, and uh, I know it's late over there, so hope you get some sleep.
1: It's not that late. We have time change. There's four hours difference now, but it was oh, great to speak oh. to you. <laughs> yeah. All right.
0: Well, great, great chatting with you. Thank you for being on.
1: Thank right. you so much. <laughs>